0: We're going to wrap up our series on Jonah this evening. Last week, we read Jonah chapter 3. In that chapter, Jonah gives a lousy little sermon. The Ninevites turn their city upside down to turn away from their evil ways. And then God turns away from the destruction that he had threatened on Nineveh. When we come to Jonah chapter 4, which we'll read this week, we see Jonah's response to God's grace and then God's gracious response to Jonah's not-so-gracious response. We'll read the whole chapter, Jonah chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord. O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine And made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? In the Lord of the Rings books and in the movies, there's this character called Denethor. And Denethor is an imposing, powerful man. But he's also jealous and resentful. For hundreds upon hundreds of years, he and his family have ruled over this big city and this huge country that goes with it. But because they weren't descended from the last king who died hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Denethor and his family have always been called stewards instead of kings. They don't get to sit on the throne. They don't get to hold the scepter. They don't get to wear the crown. They don't really get to rule the kingdom. They just get to be the caretakers until, well, until or if a new king comes. And over the years and the decades, Denethor has grown incredibly bitter that he and his children after him can't take over the kingship. And then this whole world in those books, including Denethor's city, is caught up in this huge war between good and evil. Huge armies of enemy creatures are coming to wipe out the city. It seems like all hope is lost But then there start to be this rumors of the new king coming, this new king who may be able to save the city, maybe the country, maybe the whole world from the forces of evil that are threatening it. And so the people begin, though they begin to rejoice, they take up hope. It seems like they found a new cause. But Denethor wants no part of that hope. The forces of darkness are too great. The wait has been too long. If Denethor doesn't get to be king, He doesn't want to keep living in that place and time. So Denethor calls together some of his closest servants. He goes to the royal tombs in the city, and they start collecting dry wood and lamp oil, and they start preparing a funeral pyre. Denethor is so angry, so out of control, that he is prepared to burn himself to death. Instead of fighting the forces of darkness, instead of looking forward to the coming of the new king, Denethor works himself into a flaming rage. And then Gandalf, one of the wise old characters in the Lord of the Rings books, comes to Denethor and he tries to argue him out of this death by fire. But Denethor absolutely refuses to listen to reason. Why should I want to live any longer, he screams. If I can't be sure of defeating the enemy, if I can't be the lord of the city, if a new king and a new time are coming, if life refuses to give me what I want then I want nothing. And then Denethor grabs a torch. He jumps into the middle of the pile of wood and oil. He lights it on fire, and he lays down and burns himself to death. In his misdirected, self-centered, burning anger, this man dies. In our text for today, Jonah is that kind of angry. He is burning up with rage. Now, at the end of chapter three, the book of Jonah tells us that the Ninevites turn away from their evil ways, and then God turns away from the destruction that He had threatened on them. Now, in the Hebrew, that evil that the Ninevites were doing and turned away from, and that destruction that God had threatened and turned away from, both of those are the same word in Hebrew, and that's the same word used at the beginning of Jonah chapter four when it says that Jonah is greatly displeased. Literally, this is saying, this is very evil for Jonah. Jonah thinks it's just wrong that the Ninevites repented. He thinks it's just wrong that God didn't destroy the city of Nineveh anyway. He thinks everything about the whole situation is just evil and wrong. Now, the Hebrew word for anger comes from the word to burn or to start or to kindle a fire. And I think that's because, you know, when people get really angry, their faces get all flushed, they get really red, and if they get really, really mad, it kind of looks like they're about to start on fire or explode or something. So when the Bible tells us that Jonah is really angry, it's like he's literally burning with anger. He's all red in the face, and he is ready to explode. And then Jonah does explode if Nineveh isn't going to be destroyed, if God is going to be so all-fired, gracious, and compassionate, if he refuses to give me what I want, to do what I think is right, then, says Jonah, I want nothing more than to die. Jonah is so mad that his rage is consuming him. He is burning himself up. And the particular words that he uses in this chapter to, to give voice to his rage would have been absolutely shocking to Old Testament believers. Earlier in this service, we confessed our faith in the words of Exodus 34. And that particular confession of faith, those words, the Lord is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. That was a key confessional statement for the Israelites. That phrase, that profession of faith, that shows up in Exodus 34 and then in Numbers and Chronicles and Nehemiah and Joel and all over in the Psalms. This statement of faith is shot through the whole Old Testament. This is a fundamental way that the Israelites thought about their God. And Jonah using his words or using those words to express his anger would be like for us if we quoted John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son to save the world through him and then blasting God for saving the lost. Or in our circles, it'd be like quoting the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism and then screaming at God that we really shouldn't belong to him and he really should not be our comfort in life or in death. Jonah is going as far as he can here. He is expressing his anger by blasting one of the fundamental confessions of his people about their Lord God. Now, we may sometimes get mad at God, but we don't usually get so fiery. Generally, we're more polite, we're more diplomatic, and we're a lot less destructive when God doesn't do what we want Him to do. But this text, this action of Jonah, challenges us to keep asking ourselves, are we serving the true Lord God, or are we serving the God of our agenda? Are we joining in the work of the Lord God Almighty, or are we really worshiping the God who fulfills my plan For my life. Now, we can always trust that God has a good plan for our lives. We can trust that God is compassionate and gracious, that He's slow to anger, that He's abounding in love. All of that is true every minute of our lives, and we can always trust that about God. But what we can't trust about God is that He will always follow our plans. Our God is not a tame God. We can't just tell him what to do. If we want to follow this gracious and compassionate God, we also need to accept this God who is providential and wise beyond what we can know or understand sometimes. And sometimes that will leave us overwhelmed by how God works things together in his grace and care for us. Sometimes that'll leave us shaking our heads and wondering what in the world God is doing and how he can accomplish any good through these things that are happening to us. But whether things make sense to us or not, whether God makes our dreams come true or not, God does love us, he does care for us, and he does have a plan for this world and for us. Now Jonah used the words of Exodus 34, that Old Testament profession of faith, to reject God's gracious work. But even when Jonah was rejecting who God was as a gracious and compassionate God, God was proving that profession of faith true. When Jonah was burning up with rage, God was cool. God was slow to anger. When Jonah had no good words left, God was gracious and God was compassionate to him. After Jonah's first outburst, God comes to him and he asks a question. Jonah... Have you any right to be angry? And Jonah stomps off in a huff. He goes outside the city, he builds a little shelter, and he sits down to see what God will do. Now earlier, when Jonah had run away from God the first time, God provided a whale to save Jonah and to get him back on track. And now in verses 5 to 8, God provides a vine, he provides a worm, and he provides a scorching east wind. As these things work out, God is giving Jonah a bit of heat. Jonah has been burning up with rage, and now God puts him in a little bit of a furnace. Jonah's gotten himself all worked up, ready to explode. He screamed at God that it's better for him to die than to live. So God gives him just a little taste of misery. He sends that hot east wind. The storm comes down, or the heat comes down on Jonah and makes him start to faint. And then after Jonah's gotten heated up a bit, God goes to him again and asks another question. Jonah, do you have the right to be angry about this? Literally, that question is, Jonah, is it good for you to be burning up in anger? And again, Jonah snaps. Yes, it is good. It's good for me to be burning to death with anger. Jonah is still burning himself to death in his rage, even after God has started to work with him. And in this chapter... Jonah has stepped into the role of the Ninevites. In Jonah 1, God says the evil of the Ninevites has come up before him and it needs to be addressed. In Jonah 4, the evil of Jonah has come up before God and it needs to be addressed. Jonah is now the sinner in focus. Jonah does not want God to be gracious, he does not want God to be compassionate, he does not want God to be good. What he wants is a small God, convenient for Jonah. And obedient to him, his whims and wishes. In this chapter of Jonah, God has saved the evil city, and now he's working on saving his angry prophet. In Jonah 4, verse 6, when it says that God provided a vine to give shade to Jonah, that line where it says God did this to ease his discomfort has a double meaning. On one level, it means to ease his discomfort, to make Jonah comfortable. God provided this thing so Jonah wouldn't be so uncomfortable. But that phrase can just as easily mean that God did these things to save Jonah from his evil. God is providing these things in this chapter to deliver Jonah from his evil and from his sin and from his anger. This inquisitive, gracious God is still working with Jonah. He's asking questions. He's providing an object lesson. He's pushing Jonah to accept that the Lord God's grace and his plan are greater than what Jonah can conceive. And God does the same thing to us or for us. Sometimes it's easy for us to accept God's plans, but sometimes it's hard. God does things we don't quite understand in our lives or in this world. And Sometimes God has to bring us along graciously and slowly. He asks us questions. He gives us object lessons. He gives us opportunities to learn to follow him better. Just like he did for Jonah, God sends vines and worms and hot east winds in our lives sometimes. Now before I dive into that just a little bit more, let me be clear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can look at any hard thing in our life and draw a straight line to God is punishing me or God is wanting me to learn something through this. Life is more complicated than that. God's plan is more complicated than that. And God's sovereignty is greater than that. Sometimes hard things happen in our lives and we don't know what the reasons are and we can't draw a straight line to anything good coming out of it. And sometimes the right response isn't to see what we have to learn, but to go screaming to God and demand why this is happening to us. The Psalms, even Jonah's screaming at God in this chapter shows us that we have permission to go to God and say, this is not right. What are you going to do about it? And sometimes God responds by assuring us of his love. Sometimes he responds by changing things so that life isn't so hard. And sometimes he responds by trying to open up our eyes so that we can see God's great plan, so that we can grow more and more into the people he wants us to be. God's ultimate goal is not... It's not to give us nice, easy lives. What God wants to do is to make all of us into new creations. God wants to burn the junk in our lives away and make us totally, glee, totally clean, totally good, totally holy, totally joyful people. C.S. Lewis once wrote a parable about a living house to help us understand this. Imagine yourself as a living house, Lewis wrote. God comes in to rebuild you to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the plumbing right, he's stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised. But presently, God starts knocking about the house in ways that hurt terribly and don't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? Well, the explanation is that God is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing there. He's building a new floor there. He's running up towers, he's making courtyards. You thought you were going to be a decent, sound little college or cottage. But God is building you into a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Just like Jonah, we're really good at making plans for our lives. And sometimes they're great plans, sometimes like Jonah's plans, they aren't so great. But often our blueprints just don't measure up to what God has planned. Jonah's plan was to have the Ninevites go out in a blast of fire and brimstone. God's plan was to be gracious and compassionate and to save that whole city of 120,000 people or more. Humans over time have developed thousands of ways to save ourselves and thousands of ways to condemn and destroy and do away with our enemies. But God's plan was better than any of those plans. God's plan was to send his own son. When we were God's enemies, Jesus Christ came, he lived with us, he suffered, he died, and he rose again in order to begin bringing God's kingdom into this rebellious world. Jesus, that new gracious king, the Lord of all things, has come into this world in God's plan to defeat evil in those people, and evil in we ourselves as God's people. God has come to make all things right. And at the end of the book of Jonah, God asks one last question. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4, the Lord says in part, Jonah, you've been concerned about this vine, about this small thing, but Nineveh has more than 120,000 people in it. Should I not be concerned about that great city should i not be concerned about that great city and that's how the book of jonah ends and we never find out how jonah answered that last question of god's we don't know what happened to jonah we don't know if he ended up burning himself up in his anger we don't know if he finally came to accept god's grace and compassion for the ninevites and for himself But the point isn't how Jonah answered God. The point is what our answer will be when God comes and asks us that question. If the book of Jonah was a movie, at the end of it, the camera would turn away from Jonah and it'd flip around and it'd face the readers of the book. In these last verses, the author of Jonah is trying to reach out from the book and grab us by the shoulders and point this question at us. Should I not be concerned? about that great city. Will we insist on a God of our own plans, on a God who does what we want, on a God who we can understand, on a tame God? Or will we follow the Lord God, the gracious and compassionate God, the God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in love, the God whose grace and whose plans are so much larger than ours? the God who sent his son to deliver us from our evil.